0: Brett McKay here and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. The ends justify the means. It's better to be feared than loved. Politics have no relation to morals. These are just a few of the maxims and ideas the Italian writer Niccolo Machiavelli is well known for. The cynical and duplicitous advice he offered in his book The Prince has made Machiavelli's name synonymous with manipulative self-interest and deceitful plays for power. But what if Machiavelli wrote The Prince not as sincere advice for would-be tyrant leaders but as a work of irony and satire that's meant to shine a light on the futility of manipulative deception and the need for leaders of virtue. That's the argument my guest makes in her book, Be Like the Fox, Machiavelli and His World. Her name is Erica Benner. She's a professor of political philosophy. And today on the show, Eric and I discuss why Machiavelli is misunderstood and what he actually was trying to accomplish with his writing. Instead of being an advisor for tyrants, Eric argues that Machiavelli was an impassioned supporter of republicanism and spent his life trying to foster republican virtue in Florence. And she argues that if you look at Machiavelli's life and all of his writing, you'll find a man who didn't think politics had no relation to morals, but rather firmly believed that the only way for free republics to last for centuries was to develop citizens and leaders of virtue. You're not gonna read The Prince the same way after listening to this episode. After the show's over, check out the show notes at awim.is slash be like the fox. And Erica joins me now by phone. Erica Benner, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: So you uh, published a book called Be Like the Fox. And it's sort of, uh, you're, you're trying to redeem one of the most loathed men in at least political history, Machiavelli. His name has become synonymous with duplicity, amorality, evilness. Before we get into that, what you've sort of made a career for yourself writing about Machiavelli. How did you get drawn to him as a subject?
1: Yeah, this is a question that still puzzles me quite a lot. Um, I mean, if anyone had told me about 10 or 12 years ago that I'd end up writing three books about Machiavelli in that space of time, I don't know what I would have done. I would have been horrified. I mean, it was kind of an accident. I was I was working on something completely different, nationalism in the 18th and 19th century. And Machiavelli is somebody who a lot of kind of theorists of nationalism, like Rousseau, you know, and, and Hegel would mention a lot in a favorable way. So I thought, well, I'll just kind of have a closer look at Machiavelli and see why he's so interesting. Of course, I've heard his reputation. I'd been teaching, you know, one segment of a course on political history and political theory, and Machiavelli had been a character, but I hadn't read him closely. As soon as I started looking more closely at what he wrote, not just in The Prince, but in his other works, like The Discourses, I just realized he was a lot more confusing and interesting than I ever realized. Uh, you know, the main thing was that he contradicted a lot of the things that he's famous for saying over and over in his works. You know, he's famous, as you said, for being a teacher of evil, for saying, you know, better fear than better be feared than loved, you know, for seeming to promote princes ahead of republics. But when I read closely, it looked to me like he wasn't always saying that. And Basically, I got hooked on trying to crack him, trying to kind of work out what's the bottom line of this confusing, <laughs> bewildering writer.
0: So so how did he get the... Rep- so, I mean, the, the reputation that he has is, as you said, favors princes or monarchies over republics. He's all about political duplicity. And then he's you know, sort of been synonymous with, you know, that the prince is a work of Satan and he's evil. W- where did that reputation come from?
1: Well, at the time that he wrote... You know, he, he says a lot of very irreverent things about the Catholic Church and also about monarchs. And at the time that he wrote, both of these things were becoming stronger and stronger. And they didn't like somebody who was going and, and you know audaciously, or in some cases very subtly, kind of satirizing them. A lot of other you know Republican authors at the time, actually Republican readers, sorry, at the time thought that Machiavelli was criticizing. You know, the Catholic Church and monarchs, and they approved of him for doing that. Um, but that's the main reason, you know, at the time, why he started being kind of the poster boy for the church and defenders of the you know, of strong monarchies of, you know, somebody who's who's evil, who ought to be, who's teaching things that um, were subversive and ought to be avoided. But, you know. The reason why he continues to sound like a teacher of evil is that he really does say some pretty shocking things. If you kind of just glance through the prints and, you know, just skim without reading every lie very closely, you do come up with some takeaway quotes that are pretty horrifying. I mean, he says things like, you know, sometimes if you're a ruler, you sometimes have to be prepared to do evil. You have to enter into evil ways in order to protect your state and that kind of thing even now, even when we're not sort of immersed in Catholic and monarchical values, still worries us.
0: And so what he was doing, so would it be safe to say that The Prince is sort of a work of satire? It's a very subtle argument for republicanism?
1: That's what I think, and that's what, and and I'm not claiming to be wholly original. I, I actually was inspired in that reading by early readers like Rousseau and Benedict Spinoza and others who who saw the prince as a kind of work of very subtle irony. And in some cases of outright satire, I mean, the, the difference is sort of, satire is kind of more in your face, I'm making fun of you. Um, And you usually recognize satire when you see it. Irony can be a lot subtler, where the victim of an ironic remark doesn't always kind of know if you're kind of, are you teasing me or not? Um, And and The Prince has a lot of both of those things about princes, basically about princes. and, And subtly, between the lines says lots of very positive things about republics, while claiming up front. I mean, Machiavelli says right at the beginning, I'm not going to say that much about republics, but if you keep on reading the prince really carefully, you notice all sorts of things he says, and republics always come out a lot better than princes. They're stronger, they're much better at fighting wars and winning them, they're much better at making the subjects or citizens kind of love their state and you know feel committed to it, and hold it up through thick and thin. So Yes, um, that is this kind of subtle message all the way
0: through. And what, what I, lo- I love the argument because whenever I read The Prince and I looked at some of the advice he was giving, I, I would look at it and I would think, if someone followed this advice, this is a recipe for actually diminishing your power, right? Because like, there's yeah. only so long that people would be like, are going to take that, Very authoritarian, Mm -hmm. bully-like, or duplicity that he promotes, and they revolt. So when I I read that, it's like this is actually kind of sly of Machiavelli. He he writes this manual; it's supposedly for princes or cardinals or whatever. And it's like if they follow this advice, it'll actually lead to their ruin and actually promote republicanism.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is kind of the odd thing to me about it. Kind of always kind of puzzled me, why would someone as intelligent as Machiavelli, and he clearly is, as soon as I started really reading him carefully, I, I was, I, I've been so impressed by the analytical sharpness of this guy and the understanding of human nature he had, why would someone who's that intelligent and subtle think that everyone else is so stupid that they just fall for this kind of trick and that princes could easily just kind of you know, step all over you know, whoever they felt like conquering? I, he does often you know he often says yeah men are easily taken in people are you know one thing about human beings is that we're easily taken in by snares and traps and that's the kind of weak point that human beings have unlike foxes that's hence the title be like the fox foxes he says are really good at seeing through snares and that makes it you know harder to kind of trap them human beings are kind of easy to trap because they're kind of gullible and they, they you know thinking about their present interests and not very much about the future but once you've got them if you're stupid stupid enough to think that you can hold them easily, then you're going to get, you know, you're going to have another thing coming. Um, And the prince, that's exactly what he says to princes about trying to hold republics. You can get them by being sneaky and people are kind of going to let you, maybe be taken in by some of your tricks. But once you've got people conquered, if they're used to freedom, they're not going to like it and they're going to fight back and your life will not be fun as a ruler. The life of being the most powerful man in Italy or wherever is not going to be as rosy as you thought it was going to be.
0: So I think to fully understand the context of Machiavelli's work, not just the prince, but his discourses, it's important to have at least a rudimentary understanding of Italian and European politics. And I'll admit when I was reading the book, you had that like list of cast of characters at the beginning. I found myself having to go back over and over because there's so many different people involved and people would rise to power and then fall to power and then they would rise back to power. So what was the political world like in that Machiavelli grew up in?
1: Yeah, I mean that's a good just just on that point about I, I mean when when I first started getting into Machiavelli about ten years ago, I had no clue about this history. I was not I'm a political philosopher. I didn't know much about it I knew nothing about Italian history really. Um and, and so I completely sympathize with anyone who just says, Ah, you know, too hard to get you know, everybody's straight. And when you pick up The Prince, you also might have that thought I used to. I'd read The Prince and I'd think, oh, I'm not going to really be able to get into this because there are too many names of people that I don't know. But i just say it's really rewarding once you do. About the the, the context, I mean, well, there's a political world in Europe that Machiavelli lived in. Um, the basic fact about it, I think, is that borders were always changing. There was no territorial stability and states were constantly expanding and trying to take bits of other states. <laughs> so it was very unstable in that sense, um, constantly in upheaval. The other fact about this is that most of this kind of expansion was happening with big monarchies. So there were, you know, kind of kings and queens who were hereditary trying to take bits of each other's states. Um, and you, the easiest way to do that was just to marry somebody from another royal family, and then you could make a claim on a bit of their state. Now, Machiavelli and, and Republicans like him thought this is a very, you know, this is not a recipe for stability in Europe. Um, if you want to have a more stable kind of setup, wouldn't it be better to have not ruling families running states, but to have peoples running them on a kind of more permanent basis? That was one of the good arguments that they had for republics. The specific context of Florence, well, it was also upheaval people because there was a kind of constant struggle and had been going on for about 80 years when Machiavelli was born between like the old republic. Florence was had unusually in Europe, very unusually, a republican constitution based on a wide male franchise. and uh, But a very powerful family, the Medici, a banking family, had cropped up in the last sort of 60 or 70 years um, before Machiavelli was born, trying to kind of take control of the state, and they'd come to dominate Florence. Even though Florence remained in name a republic, in fact, it was one like a principality of the Medici family. So Machiavelli came into the scene at this crucial point when there was a life and death struggle for this old, venerable, proud republic The only one really of its kind in Europe at the time, which had a lot of people by that time sort of saying, wouldn't it be better for Florence if we just went the way of everyone else and became a monarchy? I mean, the big powers were all monarchies, France, Spain, Habsburg Empire, England. Why shouldn't we try to form a, a monarchy? Wouldn't that make us stronger? And Machiavelli was one of those rare people who said, no, I don't think so. I don't think this is best for Florence, and I don't think it's best for Europe.
0: Well, despite that opposition to monarchy, he still played the political games. Like, even when there was sort of a monarchy put in place, uh, effectively, he kind of went along with it and tried to found, find ways he could change things from within.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that wasn't unusual at the time, because if you think about it, I mean, what happened, of course, is Machiavelli worked as a civil servant in a short period when Florence was in a very strong, it was, well, it was, there was a popular Republic set up and the Medici, the princes had been kicked out for a while. Um, When they came back, when Machiavelli was in his forties, he did try to work with them, but it was, you know, a tiny, this is a tiny, tiny city where everyone knows each other. Everyone, you know, of a certain class is friends with each other. And, You know, somebody like Machiavelli couldn't go and be invisible. There was no way he could just go and hide because the Medici princes had already singled him out as a troublemaker. He was somebody who was known to have supported the republic that they had expelled. Um, And the only way for him to kind of live, to have employment of any kind, was to try to work for them. So he did try. He failed for a long time um, in getting any notice notice from them at all. So he had to make a living in other ways. Um, but, yeah, he did keep trying to get back into government because, A, that was the only way you could make a living, and, B, he wanted to influence politics. He still wanted to try to steer his country back into the form of a republic.
0: But getting into politics was hard for him because of his family background, correct?
1: Yes. I mean, he he, well, he and his father and brothers were actually not allowed to be full citizens. They had the status of people who could participate as civil servants in a kind of bureaucratic level um, of, of the state, but they couldn't vote. They couldn't stand for public office. So Machiavelli's posts, when he had them, were not elected posts. They were and they were not kind of posts that he had as magistrates. They were kind of civil servant appointments of the lower status. So that's all he was allowed to have in, in his family, because of his family's, well his, his father had been a uh, tax debtor. He owed money to the state. That's the main reason he and his sons could not be full citizens. But there's also a kind of darker story behind that, that kind of Machiavelli's father's cousins had been involved in a coup attempt against the Medici earlier before Machiavelli was born. And this put them on the blacklist and made it much harder for the Machiavelli family to be trusted as long as the Medici princes were in power.
0: Yeah. The coups, the, the, like the assassinations, like it was like, I was, as I was reading, I was like, this is like Godfather stuff, right? I think there was mm. one instance they were at a church. I forgot what it was, but like they were escorting this guy and they just stabbed him with a dagger and he died there in the yep. church. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But this, let me just say that, that the kind of reputation of the Renaissance, you know, and, and Italian politics at the time for being so much worse than it is today, and being so kind of bloody—I think you can overstate it. Because yeah, there was this Pazzi conspiracy, and I think that and that was headed by the Pope. That was that was somebody an assassin sent by the Pope to make trouble for the Medici ruling family. The Popes were especially bad at this, and that's one reason why you know the Church didn't like. Machiavelli, because he brought this out, he talks about this in his writings. But the everyday politics, especially in Florence, was actually run under the rule of law as much as possible. They really, uh, when the Medici were not in power, there were very strict rules about, you know, who could, what, what happened to whom. Assassination was extremely rare. When people were, you know, indicted for treason, the law said that the the law actually gave rather soft penalties. They were going to be sent into exile rather than be, you know, killed. So, yeah, it's a bloody world, but it's also a world where there are a lot of people struggling to hold up the rule of law and to apply very ancient and clear-cut rules to, to kind of deal with political conflicts. And this is also the kind of thing Machiavelli was fighting to uphold, something people don't realize. If you read his writings all the way through... This is a man who cares about political order and order based on clear rules, clear and equal, transparent rules, more than anything. And that's something that the reputation of Machiavelli doesn't let you in on at all. And, and, He's supposed to be all dark and, yeah, r- sorry.
0: Right, no, I was going to say, how did he go about doing that, right, like promoting that end? Was it like? The, was he like the ends justify the means? Did like he use conniving and duplicity in order to promote the rule of law in this sort of weird political world that he existed in or was he pretty straightforward a straight shooter
1: well yeah this and again this this depends on when (laughs) because there's machiavelli when he was in the anti-medici republic the republic that had thrown these medici princes out and this last 15 years and that's the time when machiavelli was a civil servant and actually politically active under that sort of system of government, he was really promoting the rule of law um, very hard and, and working with other citizens who did the same. And it was easier for them because the Medici were out of the picture for a while. But then when the Medici had their coup and came back, that's when Machiavelli had to become cunning in a way. And But his cunning wasn't political cunning in the sense of he was going out and kind of, you know, kind of trying to plot and scheme and stab somebody in the back. His scheming took the form of writing because he was no longer allowed to take part in politics. The Medici banned him from political activity completely. So what does he do? He goes off and just starts writing and writing and writing. And he writes The Prince, first of all, which, as I think, is a kind of Subtle critique of Medici power, and also an attempt to kind of warn fellow citizens about how princes actually operate. You know, a lot of the stuff he says there we take as advice to princes. What if he's actually just saying, "Look, this is what princes do to get to power. A lot of it isn't very nice. Be careful what you, you know. Be careful what you wish for if you're wishing for princes, because this is what you're going to end up getting." You know, but he and so he's writing in this cunning way because it wasn't actually safe for him to say outright. You know, the princes and the Pope are, you know, lying, cheating, conniving self-seekers that, you know, free peoples need to be careful about.
0: What was, was Machiavelli ever able to implement some of his reforms that he thought would help bolster republicanism in Florence? Uh,
1: Yes. I mean, this is one of his big dreams from the time he enters political Office was to create a citizen militia to replace the mercenary system of you know military defences that most Italian states had. Um, In most most Italian states, you know they bought foreign soldiers from somewhere else, France, Spain, wherever, to fight their battles for them. And the battles were kind of very anemic affairs. People were not, you know, they wouldn't. the, The soldiers didn't like to. You know, they, they didn't want to lose their lives because they're not losing their lives for their own country. They're just out there being paid, you know, hired fighters. So, because of that, the wars ended up being kind of really soft step, you know, step, step, step um, around your enemy, try not to actually hurt them too much, and then hopes that there's going to be a stalemate and they'll call it off. And Machiavelli was up for a full blooded battle by, ideally, by people who really, really cared about the outcome of the battle, and that was going to be for him citizens whose lives were at stake and and whose freedom was at stake in a territorial war. So he thought the best way to defend Florence was to get, you know, armed citizens, ordinary people in the countryside and the city, and get them to fight their own battles. Now, the aristocrats in Florence didn't like this idea at all, because they were afraid that if you arm the ordinary people, they might use the arms against us, so Machiavelli just tirely, tirelessly fought for this citizen militia idea and worked with a lot of higher political people to get it realized. And it came to pass while he was, you know, while he was holding his civil service posts. And it worked. And they fought a war against a city, Pisa, who had let it, uh, left the Florentine circle, won Pisa back. And Machiavelli was hailed by a lot of his friends as being the kind of author of this great concept. Unfortunately, a couple of years later, when the Medici came back, it's the first reform that they basically obliterated. They just you know, wiped it off the map, and that was the end of Machiavelli's dream.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of Machiavelli's actions contradicting you know advice he gives in the Prince. Because one of the things people always point out in the Prince piece of advice is that a, a prince, one of the first things they should do is disarm the the, the subjects. But there, you know, his actions, Machiavelli is like, no, I want to arm the subjects. That is how you defend a republic.
1: Absolutely, this is, and this is the key. I mean, that's the one point where I think all Machiavelli scholars agree that this militia was, you know, the heart and soul of Machiavelli's kind of project. And, you know, we, we disagree about lots of other things, but everyone agrees on that. And like you just said, I don't understand why, if they realize how ready he was to to kind of arm the citizens. And, and, and in fact, he also says very clearly in the Prince, if you want to arm the citizens, you, you know, you have to actually give them some political power too. You can't just kind of give them arms and then leave them politically powerless because, then of course they're not going to like you. And yeah, then the threat is going to be that they might use the arms against you. So if you want to feel safe in arming them, you have to give them more political power. You have to give them employments that, uh, you know, economic employments that give them some sense of dignity. And he actually uses this militia not just as a way of trying to find better military defenses, but also as a kind of argument for making, you know, Florence into a deeper, more democratic republic where, you know, people actually have more economic equality and more sense of you know mutual respect. So that's that's a you know pretty strong argument against the idea that he thinks principalities are the best way to go.
0: And Machiavelli was influenced substantially by significantly by uh, ancient writers from Greece and Rome. Were there any writers in particular that influenced his ideas about democracy, republic republics, etc.?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the writer he mentions most often is the historian Livy, Titus Livy. Um, and Livy wrote this massive, massive history of Rome at the end of the Roman Republic, just when the, you know, the, the Republic had collapsed after years of being corrupt and had been replaced with kind of emperors. Livy regretted this. He was very sorrowful. And he writes this big, long history of the Republic and how great it had been in the past, he tries to diagnose the reasons why the Republic Foul. And Machiavelli mentions him a lot as a source of lessons on how you can save republics from internal decay and internal corruption that you know, makes them self-combust. Tacitus is another Roman author he uses a lot. Tacitus was very um, sly, subtle, subtle critic of the Roman Empire when he lived under it. He writes very subtle critiques without quite showing his cards, so it's hard to kind of nobody could really easily persecute him because he didn't, you know, you can't really pin down what he's really saying sometimes. I think Machiavelli was very influenced by his style of writing.
0: And uh, yeah, like you talk about the book, this is when the printing press was first invented at the same time, so he had access, like I, he'd make trips just to buy these books for his own personal library.
1: Yeah, that was actually Machiavelli's dad, who was a Really interesting guy. And that was Machiavelli's dad. Who got he? He's the one who he, he didn't have a full time job, even though he was a very highly trained and respected lawyer by by um, education. He hardly ever practiced law, probably because he thought the Medici system he was in was too corrupt, um, or they didn't want him to practice. But what he did do was, you know, spend a lot of time reading, and he offered to kind of copy out a whole kind of index of Livy's many many works. If he could get the the book for free from his friend, the printer, um, and so this is the book, you know, the great first 10 books of Livy that Machiavelli wrote his discourses about. The, his book The discourses is actually called The Discourses on Livy. So, And he uses Livy as his main kind of inspiration, talking about how, you know, and the theme there again is the theme that's so topical for us today too. It's how do great republics decline? What, what goes wrong? And how can you, you know, he was looking back as, as Livy was on, you know, uh, the glorious history of, of republics that nevertheless, Come to ends, and sometimes by their own hands, by by their own mistakes. And so, I think Machiavelli's main, you know, point was to try to teach future generations, as well as Florentines, how to kind of see the dangers before they get too big. Um, how to kind of try to protect your freedoms, your um, good institutions uh, that we tend to take so much for granted. Um, and to spot the kind of diseases before they become lethal.
0: So uh, another theme in Machiavelli's work, a big one, is this idea of fortune. And I've heard people say that the prince is a sort of a guidebook on how to master fortune. First, what did Machiavelli and his contemporaries mean by fortune? Because I think we use that word differently than people say in the Renaissance did.
1: Yeah. I mean, fortune is basically, it's a word that signifies the unpredictable in human life, what is incalculable, unpredictable, what you cannot entirely control. That's what it means for Machiavelli and for the ancients that he is drawing on. I mean, it's a concept you find in all the ancient Greek and Roman writers, too. Now, the thing about, talking about fortune being something you need to master, the thing about fortune, the way I just defined it, is you can't master it. I mean, by definition, fortune is something that is not masterable. So when modern people say, Yeah, Machiavelli's teaching you how to master fortune, uh uh-uh, uh, no, he's not. He's teaching you, first of all, remember that fortune is not something you can master. It's there's always going to be some unpredictability in life, in politics, whatever it might be. So get get used to it, you know, bite the bullet and understand it. Second point is if you decide that you're going to try to master fortune and waste a lot of time at that rather pointless end, you're not going to get very far because fortune is unreliable. You might actually manage to get, you know, a good string of luck and to think, okay, now I'm really getting this. I've I've got, you know, I'm controlling things now by one way or another. I've got it. You get too confident. You start to rely on luck and that's going to make you work a lot less hard at what you actually need to do to make a stable state or to consolidate your own personal power. Fortune is unreliable, and you'll be surprised if you think that you're doing really, really well, and you find a lot of politicians who, to everyone's surprise, seem to be kind of flying really high getting you know, massive successes, whether it's Napoleon or Cesare Borgia in Machiavelli's own time, or many people we don't have to name in our own time. Why is this happening? This is amazing. Well, Machiavelli says, you know, they're, if they're not doing the things you need to do in order to consolidate your power, to consolidate power takes virtu, virtue, is how it's translated. And virtue is hard work. <laughs> That's you know one of the main qualities of virtue for Machiavelli. It's very hard work, looking way ahead, foresight, knowing your own limits, getting firm allies because you can never do everything all by yourself. So you need stable friends, not just fair weather ones. And getting this kind of, you know, building political orders, institutions, and power bases in those ways is much better guarantee than, than relying on fortune.
0: Yeah, you, you, he's, as you said, highlight in the book, he uses uh, Borgia, right, as an example. Like, it was, it was sort of a subtle dig. It makes it sound like when he wrote it, that he was praising this guy. But if you read between the lines, what Machiavelli was saying, this guy is only in power because he just got lucky.
1: Yeah, I mean, did did you get that reading it? Because it's it's hard. This is one of the hardest bits of Machiavelli. and, And, you know, you'll get really, really excellent, lifelong Machiavelli scholars who still don't, See that, um, and others who do, but but nowadays not so many. But there is this kind of—it's it, a hard thing to do. It is wonderful satire. He 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 uses all these very good words with Cesare Borgia. He says, "I would, you know, I would always present him as a model to be imitated by anyone who wants to win power through fortune." So here it is. Here are these wonderful things he did. But you got it right. If you say I would hold him up to as an example for anyone who wants to get power through fortune, but a few pages earlier Machiavelli has just told us he says black and white. If you want to get power and hold it, fortune is not the way to go. Don't rely on fortune. Rely on virtue, which is the opposite of fortune, <laughs> because fortune yeah. is you know um, fortune is easy, virtue is hard work. Fortune is quick and fast. Virtue is long and hard. You know, these are old classical themes that Machiavelli's just playing on again. But you know, yeah, he does seem to praise Cesare Borgia. But between the lines, he tells you what? How did Cesare get to power? It's not precisely just luck because fortune here Machiavelli breaks it down. Being a very concrete-minded guy, he says fortune is money. Um, I've got a lot of money and so I can buy my way to power. It is other people's weaknesses. Oh, good. I, I'm an opportunist. I see a chance to kind of jump in there and make myself powerful because somebody else is in trouble. And fortune is relying on other people's strengths and resources, not my own talents and hard work. And he shows you in this little chapter about Cesare exactly how he operates. And he never stops up working with money and depending on fortune, uh, and, sorry, on money and uh uh, other people's weaknesses, and uh, other people's resources. So that's what fortune is. Um, and, he's, you know, leave it to the reader. Does the reader get it? If you're not going to get it, then, you know, you can read Machiavelli's print and think, uh, do I get this or not? Well, if you're, if you don't get it, then you might try to imitate Cesare, and good luck to you. <laughs> you're going to end up the same way he did. You know, flying really high, everyone being the you know terror of, of Central Italy for a long time, and then within a few years, crash, fall, his empire breaks up, and he's dead.
0: <laughs> right. But I, 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 that, I mean, that was one of my favorite takeaways from reading your book, and like the critique that Machiavelli made. Because I think that can even if you're not a, like a, in a position of power, that being fooled by fortune can lead you to a lot of heartache. Sometimes you th- you think you're doing great and it's all you, you know, but it's really not. <laughs> and and then you and then when something bad happens because of just fortune, you feel terrible cuz like, well, this is my fault. Well, no, it's not entirely your fault. There's an element of fortune there. I thought that was a really Really, that's the one thing I've been thinking about since I, I finished reading your book.
1: Well, you're, you're obviously a much more virtuous character than Cesare because Cesare Borgia, um, contrary to saying, "Oh, I fell. Poor, oh, that must be my own fault," he did the opposite. He said, "Oh, I fell. That's everybody else's fault, but mine." <laughs> <So> <laughs> that's, that's what a really fortune-dependent character right. does. They blame everybody but themselves. Um, we won't mention any politicians who do that. We don't know any like that, but that's. Cesare, and obviously you're 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 a good person because you said you blamed yourself.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, focus on virtue rather than fortune or luck or whatever you want to call it. That is uh, a key to life. And like I guess the challenge too is sussing out what is fortune and what is based on your own virtue. That's another
1: challenge. Yeah, that think. is, and that's something where that, again I think Machiavelli, following his classical authors. He doesn't want to give you simple answers. He doesn't want to do like a modern textbook would do and say, here's fortune, here's virtue, go and pass a test telling us what's what. Um, He actually wants, he's kind of mixing these things up in his examples of individuals and invites readers to kind of say for themselves, so where is Chizuru being virtuous here? You know, where is he being? To rely on, on fortune, because that's the only way that, in practice, you know, ordinary citizens can start to judge their political leaders as well. You know, you got to you see it on paper. You see this example, of somebody, and you judge for yourself what's working and what's not, and why. Um, and you know, then you can go out into the political arena. And see how people are operating there, and judge for yourself.
0: So this, he wrote his stuff, The Prince, The Discourses, and Livy, over five hundred years ago. People are still reading it. What do you think it is about Machiavelli that's so timeless?
1: Well, I think the simplest level, you know, you just it looks so simple and clear. His, his writing style on the surface looks just so beautifully readable and, and simple. It isn't, once you look more closely, like we've said. And it's got these wonderful maxims that just stick out, but also resonate so strongly. <laughs> whether, whether the maxims are the kind of nasty Machiavellian ones about how, you know, you know, conniving politicians operate, or whether it's his kind of more uplifting points about republics and how to save them from decline, um, that's, these are problems that are always... With us, politics and human nature, as he says, don't change. As long as human beings are human beings, there's no real progress in, let's say, the way that human beings function in their relationships with each other, which is what politics is. We might get progress in, you know, medical science or. You know, knowledge of the, the broader universe. But this is one area where things don't change much. And Machiavelli, really, he's, he's truthful. He's intriguing because it's not always clear what he's getting at. Hits the nail on the head.
0: Yeah. I, like, I love that portrait, that famous portrait of Machiavelli right? sort of got like this sly smile on him. And after kind of reading, like he, this is, his whole work is just sort of a, a work of slyness. And I like that picture. It makes me wonder what he was thinking when yeah. he had that portrait done of himself.
1: Yeah, but don't you think he looks terribly, he looks like a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kinder kind of, a right. kind sort of slyness. It's, not, it's slyness not in the interest of, oh, Ex- let's just get ahead of exactly. what people think. It's more a slyness and hang on, let's defend ourselves better, all of us. Right. You know, no, not just me. Not just me,
0: me, me, but all of us. <laughs> that's all of us. So my 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 last question is how would you what advice would you give to people who want to revisit the prince and they want to look at, you know, look at it with fresh eyes. So they see these insights into how he promoting virtue, how he was promoting freedom and republicanism, and getting over that idea that he's just showing you how to be a a conniving con artist?
1: Yeah, I mean, first I'd say, well, first as a rule of thumb, realize that it's not as easy as it looks. Uh, it's not as straightforward as it looks. I think that's pretty important because it can be seductively, uh, you know, deceptively clear <laughs> Machiavelli's prose. Realize it's harder. And then I would say... Although I'm in favor of kind of reading books like The Prince all the way through, maybe counterbalance the reputation that that is in all of our heads about Machiavelli, counterbalance it by doing the opposite of what most people do, reading The Prince. Most people go straight for the kind of standout, jump off the page, you know, Machiavellian quotations and say, okay, that's Machiavelli. The rest, they kind of skim. At least I used to do that when I, before I really got into him. Instead of that, look for the things where he talks about republics, you know, starting with, and when he mentions the word freedom or republics, go for it and really look at what he's saying and feel, feel the passion even. It's in Chapter 5 of The Prince, which is where he first really talks about republics, they just boast on the scene in this heated way. Everything that's happened before it in the first four chapters is called princes, called, just, you know, this is how they operate. Suddenly there's republics, and what are they doing? They're resisting the prince. <laughs> they're resisting very hard, and they're making life absolute hell for the prince. And I would, I would really go for that, and then go to the discourses too, and look at a couple of chapters where he does the same thing, where he talks about republics in ways that, very hard to make you, you know, to resist the thought that, hang on. He's so, this is somebody who's, you know, not just saying that republics are sometimes the best form of government, pragmatically speaking. This is someone who believes that as a matter of deep principle for human beings at all times, this is the best way to go and not princes.
0: And the other thing I've done is look, highlight the word fortune. That's some, I've been on the lookout for that. that... Fortune.
1: Mm. But, but does that really help? Does that help you get, to a Republican Machiavelli,
0: no, maybe. But the idea that virtue is more important, right? Don't just rely on, you know, like, sort of like the Borgia guy. Like, don't be like him. He might when he mentions fortune, it doesn't yeah, mean it's yeah. necessarily a good thing.
1: Yeah, 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 good point. Yeah, that's that's highlighting. I mean, my, my <laughs> I could show you some of my Machiavelli texts, they highlight. I've got highlights and highlights of all kinds of words that um, stick out. I mean, I shouldn't. Yeah, if you want to get a nice little guide to how I read The Prince. I've got a whole book on just Machiavelli's Prince, where it's kind of chapter by chapter, and I even set out at the beginning a list of like keywords and how they're how he plays with them. So there's that book too, which is just Machiavelli's it's called Machiavelli's Prince, in you reading. So not to promote my other books, no, that's as fast, but but it's it's you know at least it's it's my way. of It was, it shows how I try to kind of come to terms with all these difficulties in a very um, kind of I think very just honest way. So that's controversial, but that's, you know, Machiavelli is one of those authors who is always going to be controversial because that's just inherent in the way he writes. He writes in a tricky way. I don't think he wants readers to say, oh, this is like a good lecture where we come away saying Professor Machiavelli tells us to do X and Y. That's the wrong way to read him. The right way is he's testing. He's testing our political intelligence by giving us examples that are confusing or that have, you, know, you might judge in different ways. And, uh, and I think that's the starting point. If, if anyone tells you, Machiavelli is so easy and so simple, you know they haven't really engaged with him.
0: So you have to be like the fox to catch a fox.
1: Yeah. And then you learn to be a fox, but a good kind of fox. Not one who's, who's trying to kind of get one over somebody else, but someone who's going, trying to do what Machiavelli says foxes do in the prince, he, What he praises them for is seeing through snares. They see through traps. They don't try and try to cheat other people. These very cute animals, other animals, non human animals, generally are not as cunning. We're not they're not cunning in the same way. Um, they're a lot more you know, there's a lot you can learn from them without taking on these human defects that we've projected onto boxes and our hands.
0: Yeah. So Erica, this has been a great conversation. Is there some place people can go to learn more about your work?
1: Um, well, since you ask, I've just been struggling with setting up a new personal website ericabenner.com it doesn't seem to be really showing yet but i hope it will be soon
0: fantastic well erica benner thank you so much for your time it's been a pleasure
1: thank you brett
0: my guest today was erica benner she's the author of the book be like the fox it's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere also check out our show notes at aom.is slash be like the fox where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the podcast, have gotten something out of it. I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please share the show with your friends. Word of mouth is how this show grows. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.